you would take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. If you need a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you or somewhere around you. Exodus 1, I believe, is on page 45 of that Bible, the second book in the Bible. Before we begin, I want to say thank you to Chad, who's not in here, but uh, in the middle of last week, Uh, it became very clear that I would not be able to stand here and preach. And um, he stepped in and took that responsibility, and I'm very thankful for him. Chad is always uh, willing to serve, um, and so I'm thankful for that. Uh, Also, if you haven't noticed already, my voice will be weak today. Uh, It was about 10 years ago uh, when a chronic... um, condition came on quite suddenly in my life, and uh, there were many Sundays, as those of you who were here 10 years ago will remember, where it seemed I shuffled into the pulpit like an old man, and then preached, and then shuffled out of the pulpit like an old man. Uh, And so I trust that the God who strengthened me to preach those days will strengthen me to preach today, uh, even if it sounds a bit different. And if you prefer this, well, sorry, I hope I get my voice back. Um, But we're going to actually read all of Exodus 1, and then pray, and then begin. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers in that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. 
The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with the midwives, God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Let's pray. Father, these are your words. I am your servant. We are your people. And so we pray by your spirit that you will speak to us through your word that we might find hope and encouragement in this day. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. And before we begin, this is feeding back some, so if you could pay attention to that and do something about it, that'd be great. It may be because of the nature of my voice today. But dark days are a reality that we all have to face. And, and being a Christian, belonging to God's people, does not exempt us from those dark days. Really, you need only ask our Ukrainian brothers and sisters, don't you? None of them are immune to soldiers coming, bombs exploding. They are not free from the darkness that has invaded. But really, even if nothing were happening in Ukraine, you need look no farther than your own life, do you? Or the lives of those in your family. Or think about those in our church. Darkness abounds everywhere, and the dark days come to us all. And when they do come, when they show up at our front door unannounced, with no reason for the visit, and with very large bags of luggage because they're going to stay for a while, they can leave us wondering, where is God? Has He forgotten has he left? Will he act? How long, O oh Lord? And I have a sneaking suspicion that if we could be a fly on the wall in Exodus 1, and we could sit in with these families and hear fathers praying with their children among the Hebrews, you might hear those words being prayed, How long, O oh Lord? Or you might hear only part of a verse that we just sang, minor tears in times of sorrow, darkness not yet understood. Through the valley I must travel where I see no earthly good. You see, this morning we begin, as John said, a study in the book of Exodus. And this great, it is a wonderful book. It is a great book. It is a book that holds a very special place in the history of God's people. It is a book whose subject matter comes up over and over again through the rest of the Bible. But this story of God's power, of God's redemption, of God's compassion, of God's holiness, of God's purposes, it begins in darkness. But still, even as we look into the darkness of chapter 1 in Exodus, 
we see this, that even when our days are dark, our God is faithful. Even when our days are dark, our God is faithful. But before we get to the dark days, what we have at the beginning of Exodus, first of all, is a summary of good days. I mean, these are good days. Now, the book of Exodus is a continuation of the book of Genesis. Really, all five of the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch, uh, should be taken together. They are a whole. And in fact, the very first Hebrew word in the book of Exodus, one that you can't see in your English translation unless you carry around one that is extremely literal, the first word is actually a conjunction. It's the word and. It really reads, and these are the names. It doesn't just begin. It's continuing on what we already saw in Genesis. And in these first verses of Exodus, we're introduced to folks that we met in Genesis. We're reintroduced to them, really. Abraham's descendants, the sons of Abraham's grandson, Jacob, Jacob, whom God renamed Israel. Israel was not first the name of a nation. It was first the name of a man. And one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, had been sold into slavery by his brothers. And he winds up, and, and I have to go very quickly, so the story is much more compelling if you read Genesis. But just to summarize, through a whole series of events, Joseph ends up through God's providence, as the second in command over Egypt. Meanwhile, back home, there is famine, and Jacob sends his sons to Egypt where they hear that there's grain. And so his boys go, and God ends up reuniting these brothers. Joseph forgives his brothers for what they did to him and says that God was behind it all in order to save the family. And so now they're in Egypt, and really in that, as you come out of Genesis, Egypt is actually a pretty good place to be because famine, they're escaping famine there. God will save them there. God will provide food for them there. Things seem to be looking up, as it were. The family is flourishing. Look at verse 7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Notice that language, fruitful, multiplied, filled. Do those words ring any bells for you? Well, if we had read Genesis first, not only would we have run out of time, but we would have heard in the very first chapter God telling Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We would have heard God tell Noah, be fruitful and multiply. But even more than that, God tells Abraham in his promises to him, Genesis 17, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And after testing Abraham's faith in Genesis 22, God says, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. God repeats this kind of language to Isaac in chapter 26 and to Jacob 
in chapter 35. So what we see here in the first seven verses of Exodus isn't just an introduction. It's not just a once upon a time. It's an indication that God is faithful to His people. His, he's keeping His promise. His people are fruitful. They are multiplying. They are filling. God has saved them from famine, and now He's blessing them. These are good days. But the good days won't last. Because when we come to first, verse 8, we enter dark days. Dark days. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. There's a new king in Egypt, a pharaoh. Now, just so you know, if you're not familiar with the Bible, Pharaoh's not the name of the king of Egypt. Pharaoh is a title for the king in Egypt. And the text says he doesn't know Joseph, which seems very difficult as far as just complete ignorance because it seems unlikely that he would have no knowledge of his own nation's history, especially something as severe as a famine that would have wiped out the nation. Many actually suggest that he just intentionally forgot Joseph, forgot the blessing of Joseph, forgot the blessing that Joseph was to Egypt, forgot the fact that Joseph was the one who managed things in such a way that Egypt was saved. Well, no, however you take it, the king is... Joseph is no longer in the picture. And the king sees these people being fruitful, multiplying, filling the land. And what does he say? He says, we've got to do something about this. We can't just let this happen. He sees what is a blessing of God as an actual threat to him. He's afraid. He's Paranoid, He's thinking, what will what, happen if we go to war? And these Hebrews decide that they're done with us. And they're just going to take up arms and fight for the other side. We need to make sure that they can't do that. We need to make sure that we demoralize them, that we take their strength away. There's so many of them. What will we do if they turn on us? Well, he decides to be proactive, doesn't he? He'll subdue them. He'll control them. He'll eliminate them as a threat. And he uses three strategies to do it. Three strategies. Now, we'll come back to these in just a moment. But first, we're going to look at them from Pharaoh's side. Strategy number one is violent oppression. Violent affliction. Violent affliction. Verse 11 Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now, this kind of forced labor is not uncommon. 
in the ancient world, this would, this would take place in order to accomplish various government projects. Um, I don't know if they started by filling potholes, but if they were doing this in Indiana, certainly that's where we would want things to start. <coughs> but these taskmasters, taskmasters are set over them as overseers to make sure the job gets done. But did you notice all the words describing how these taskmasters treated them? Verse 11, afflicted them with heavy burdens. Verse 12, they were oppressed. Verse 14, made their lives bitter. Verse 13 and verse 14, ruthlessly made the people work as slaves. These men are ruthless. They are severe. They are harsh. They are brutal. They are violent. They inflict pain to squeeze every drop of work out of the slaves and to try to extinguish every flame of hope in their heart. They want to make their lives miserable. It wasn't just about getting the work done, you see. It was about killing the spirit of the people. Now, one may look at that and think, well, that's what all biblical slavery is like, isn't it? Well, actually, no. Later on, when the law regulates the practice of slavery, this word ruthlessly comes up again, and God tells His people that if they have slaves, Leviticus 25, 43, you shall not rule over them ruthlessly, and shall, but shall fear your God. In other words, what the Egyptian taskmasters are doing is evil in God's sight. It is abominable. It is an abhorrence. Pharaoh doesn't fear God. The taskmasters don't fear God. In fact, at the end of verse 12, who is it that they fear? Who do they fear? The people of Israel. They're terrified of them. And that fear leads them to unthinkable violence. Now, just as an aside, friends, we don't actually, I don't think we take fear of man seriously enough. Fear of man is not just a trap to make you want other people to like you all the time. Fear of man will lead to all manner of evil. Fear of man here leads to the oppression of an entire people group. Fear of man in Saul had him hurling spears across the table at, his, at, at David and then at his son Jonathan. Had him sending armies. Had him begging in pity parties to his people. Well, don't you care about me? Well, don't you love me? Why would you go after David? Fear of man, friends, fear of man will ruin your lives and it will, it will stimulate in you thoughts of doing incredible evil toward other people just so you can feel secure. Well, that's strategy number one. Violent affliction. Strategy number two is covert infanticide covert infanticide. It's not public policy yet. He calls in these two women who are probably representatives of the midwives. He wants to cut these people off, cut them off at the source, eliminate the possibility that they can form a military regimen, and also just, just cut off the fact that they can reproduce and keep building the population. So what is the best way to do that? 
Kill the boys. Kill the boys. Verse 15, Then the king of Egypt said to the midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Now it seems before we even dive into this that we live in a day in which it is sadly necessary to say that these midwives will know at the birth of the baby which are male and which are female. And friends, that basic assumption of distinction runs throughout the Bible. So much of the Bible doesn't even make sense if we don't have clear categories. But the point here if you read carefully, did you, did you notice what Moses actually records? He doesn't record if it's a boy, kill it. Did you notice that? The language here is far more personal. It is, it is far more intimate. He says, look at verse 16. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, he shall live. These aren't just boys and girls. These aren't just human beings. These aren't just statistics. These aren't just obstacles to his kingdom. These are sons, daughters. They have mothers and fathers and the family language underlines the darkness and the cruelty of what Pharaoh is actually doing here. It's awful. And then we get to strategy number three, which is even worse. It's just in one verse, verse 22. Pharaoh's no longer interested in having summits where he calls in particular strategic people. Now he gets on television and, he's, and he, has, uh, he has a special address from the king for the nation of Egypt. And this is what he says. Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. The terror, the cruelty have risen to a whole new level, hasn't it? It's, it's no longer that all you need to do is get out of the delivery room and you'll be okay. Now you can't carry your son to the market. Now you ought not to carry that baby boy down to the park. You ought not just to walk around because somebody who feels like they're serving the Pharaoh could muscle that boy out of your arms and take off for the Nile and just 
pitch him in and feel a sense of satisfaction because of it. Friends, the, the killing of sons and daughters is a particularly heinous evil. Whether it is outside the womb or whether it is inside the womb. Because both echo Pharaoh's desire. What is it that Pharaoh wants? He wants control. He wants to have his kingdom the way that he wants it. And he is prepared to kill in order to get it. And I would venture to say that in our day, abortion is an attempt at the same kind of control. It is an attempt to remain the ruler of my own kingdom, to keep my kingdom from being disrupted by a son or a daughter. It sees children as a threat to a lifestyle, to an education, to a career, rather than as a blessing from the Lord. And it is a particularly heinous evil. Friends, we live in dark days. And so did these people of Israel. And as the Pharaoh moves from one tactic to the next, the darkness gets darker. The cruelty becomes more cruel. Can you feel the weight of that? The suffering, the anguish, the darkness... Can you understand why some of the folks might have prayed like David would later? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Now look, this isn't the last time that their enemies are going to exalt over them. Later on, in the time of judges, they'll be oppressed by various nations, right? And still later, they're going to end up going into Babylonian captivity and being servants of Babylon. But here's the difference. Those make sense. Because it's their sin that did that. I mean, we understand that kind of suffering, don't we? Don't we understand when we bring suffering on ourselves because of our sinful decisions? But here in Genesis and here in Exodus, we don't have the slightest hint that these Israelites have sinned. We don't have any indication that they brought it on themselves. That this is some kind of judgment. There is no explanation. It just is. And it leaves that question hanging in the air. Where is God? Alec Mattia wrote, heaven above was as silent as earth around was threatening. 
And as Christians, we have the same experience, don't we? I mean, we understand suffering because of our sinful choices, but when it just happens, I mean, when it's just there, when it just is, when it's just an experience with no explanation, we can start thinking God is absent, God is distant. We can descend into what has often been called the dark night of the soul. A crisis of faith, wondering if God has abandoned us, questioning God's purposes. Now in our day, it actually seems fashionable to do this. As if somehow this is the height of spirituality. To just go around the small group or to sit across the coffee table and just talk about how we question what God's doing and why this and why that. And we just stay there. All we do is we wallow in our wondering and we're satisfied with our questions. But the Bible won't leave us there. The Bible would tell us, you can't stay there. Even at the end of Psalm 13, when David is saying, how long, O Lord, by the end, he's remembering the steadfast love of God to him. He's committing to keep singing and keep serving because of who God is. Look, you can't, you can't stay in the, in the questioning. You can't stay in the God has abandoned me mode. And here's why, and apart from the fact that it's unhelpful, apart from the fact that it's not biblical, here's just a very practical thing. You've watched NASCAR, right? Well, if you haven't, here you know, understand the basic idea. They just go around in circles, and they don't actually go anywhere. It makes no sense to me whatsoever. But that's actually what you're doing. Where is God? Why is he doing this? 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 Why is he doing this? Why is he doing this? Why? And you will run around and around and you'll run out of gas and you'll exhaust yourself and do you know where you'll get? Nowhere. We can't leave it there, friends. The Bible doesn't leave it there. Because we don't just see dark days. We also see our faithful God. Our faithful God. Now, God's faithfulness in this chapter isn't necessarily on the surface. And you do actually have to look for it. And you do have to remember Genesis came before this. This isn't just a... I mean, Exodus in some ways stands on its own, but it's not meant to stand on its own. It's part of a larger storyline. And when we look carefully and when we think carefully about what has come before and what's happening in this chapter, we will see God's faithfulness. One of the things we see is that God is with his people in Egypt. Back in Genesis 46, before Jacob and the family ever went to Egypt, this is what God said to him. I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. So when the afflictions come, when the taskmasters get fierce, when the death threats are handed down, 
when God seems distant, like he's on vacation or out on a coffee break, remember this promise. And remember, friends, that no matter what you feel, you can know he is there. He is in Egypt. He is with you. This should strengthen these suffering people, reminding them that God's eye is on Pharaoh. God's eye is on the taskmasters. God's eye is on the one who would pitch their sons into the Nile. He hasn't abandoned them. He's with them. But you know what else they have? They have the story of Joseph. You see, it's a long, long time between what happens in uh, Genesis and when this is all written down. And all these accounts are told over and over and over and over again. And they have the story of Joseph. You see, Pharaoh may have forgotten him, but they haven't. You know what took Joseph to Egypt? You know what litters that whole story? Dark days. He's thrown into a pit, threatened by his brothers to kill them, kill him, sold into slavery, falsely accused of sexual assault, wrongfully imprisoned for it, forgotten in prison by a fellow inmate. Darkness runs through it. But if you read those chapters carefully, you'll see, you'll find a phrase that appears multiple times, and that is, the Lord was with him. And because the Lord was with him, his suffering led to glory. Now, long before the Apostle Paul ever penned Romans 8.28, Joseph's story taught these people that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And Joseph's God is their God. And friend, let me just tell you, Joseph's God is our God. If you belong to Jesus, he is your God. God may send us into dark days, days we don't understand, days we can't explain, but we never go alone. Even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. And our suffering will lead to glory. I consider that the sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. That's where the hope is. God is with his people in Egypt. The second thing we see God did is God warned his people about Egypt. God warned his people about Egypt. Again, that's not in Genesis, Exodus 1. You have to go back. But again, these would be things that they would hear over and over again. The promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, God says this. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. 
Now look, 400 years is a lot easier to talk about than it is to live through, isn't it? But still, God says their time in Egypt will be hard, it will be long, it will be marked by suffering, it will be marked by affliction. So the unprovoked cruelty of Pharaoh, the ruthless affliction of the taskmasters, the threat of death on their children, none of it should surprise them. It is what God said would happen. But that's not all that God said in Genesis 15. Because the very next sentence out of God's mouth, as it were, is this, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Yes, you will suffer in Egypt, but do not fear. God will overcome Egypt. Sounds a whole like, like a promise that we have from the Lord Jesus, doesn't it? In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Friends, we should be encouraged in our dark days because our darkest day is not the last day. Because God said we would have tribulation. Paul tells the churches in Acts 14, it is through tribulation that we must enter the kingdom of God. That while our flesh is wasting away, our soul will be removed day by day and there will come a day when this tent is put off and we take up residency in our home. The last day belongs to God. All the dark days belong to God too, by the way. But in the end, nothing will interfere with the fact that God has the last day and God has the last word and Christ has overcome. And that's good news for you and for me in our dark days, isn't it? It, wouldn't it even be more cruel if God had said nothing about the suffering that we would face in this life? If all he said was, hey, I came to give you life and give it more abundantly. Period. End. Well, we could just take that and decide what we think it means, couldn't we? But apparently, abundant life is not absent suffering. It's not absent loss. It's not absent heartache. It's not absent illness. It's not absent grief. Because those things prepare us. God has purposes in, those, in that pain. Even when we don't understand, even when we want to raise our hand in class and say, God, what is the purpose behind this? Even when we just can't see it. We know in the end, but we can't see it now. That's why we walk by faith, not by sight. The third thing we see is that God protects his people in Egypt. Now, he did it in two different ways. One is through his providence. 
God is not going to let his people get snuffed out. Look at what Pharaoh says in verse 10. Pharaoh says, come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And here is God's answer at the beginning of verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. Ha! Why do the nations rage? I mean, he who sits in the heavens laughs. God's purposes will not be thwarted by Pharaoh. Hear that. God's purposes cannot be thwarted by the greatest evil that is perpetrated against us. God's purposes cannot be thwarted. In the midst of the dark day, what do you need to know? God's purposes cannot be thwarted. But not only does God protect them through his providence, God protects his people through people. Specifically, these midwives. They defy Pharaoh's command to kill Hebrew sons. They fear God more than they fear a human king. And because of them, little boys live. And God rewards them for it. Look at verse 20 and 21. God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Not only that, but here's something I noticed. Did you notice that the only two human beings in this story who get named are these two midwives? The taskmasters, nameless. The king of Egypt, nameless. These two women who headed up the guild of the midwives, named Shifra Pua. It's a little surprising, isn't it? But it's also encouraging. You see, not many of us would have been able to name these midwives about two weeks ago. (laughs) And maybe in a couple more weeks, you may not be able to name them then. But God knows their names. He sees their service. He marks it down. He sees their faith. He sees their courage. And friend, he sees yours too. It may go unnoticed by your family. It may go unnoticed by your friends. It may even go unnoticed by people in your church around you. You may live as a servant in the shadows, but God sees. He knows your name. He sees your faith. He sees your service. He sees your sacrifice. He sees your courage. He sees your gospel witness. He sees your parenting. He sees your praying. He sees your generosity. He sees your work. He sees it, and he knows it, and he will reward it. The God who sees in secret will reward I mean, but think about it. Think of how unlikely these heroes really are. I mean, if you were just making up a story, you couldn't come up with this. Now, look, we live in a day in which we ought to be very thankful for those who work in the medical field, right? Every hospital, maybe still does, has a, you know, a sign out front or a sign over the door or signs all through the place that say heroes work here, right? 
And praise the Lord for the men and women who have slugged it out in the trenches in the last two years, putting themselves in harm's way to serve others. Praise the Lord for all of them. But in this day, this is so strange. This is so strange. Midwives are the heroes of your story, Moses. Are you sure you want to write that down? Well, yes, because that's what happened. Everybody knows who Shifra and Pua are. Nobody will be surprised that I've written this down. They're the chosen instrument God used to save us from certain death. And God wants their names remembered. Brings to mind another unlikely hero, doesn't it? A carpenter? A teacher? From Nazareth, no less. And yet Jesus is God's chosen one. His Messiah who came to save us from certain death. And the thing is, there's no other name where you'll find salvation, friend. God has given him a name that is above every other name, and his name will not be forgotten. And his name cannot be ignored. And the good news is that no matter how dark the days of your life are, God will forgive you and save you if you call on Jesus by faith. If you believe that he died for your sin, you trust his death as sufficient for you and you believe that God raised him from the dead. God will see you on the birth stool, as it were, and you'll be spared. That's the good news. But how are we... We see this in front of us. We see Exodus 1 in front of us. But how, how are we to look for God when our days are dark? What is it that we can do? Because these are their days, and we read about their days, and we're encouraged about their days, and we amen their days, and we celebrate their days, because even though they're dark, God is faithful. But you just don't know the darkness I'm in. You just don't know the darkness I've walked through. You just don't know. Well, you're right, but you're also wrong. Because the problems of life are common for us. What is it that we ought to do when days are dark? I'm just going to give you four suggestions for how you can find God when days are dark, all right? The first is read your Bible. Read your Bible. I mean, here is the record of God's faithfulness to His people. It is written to encourage us and to give us hope when days are dark. Do you know what one of the first things so many people do when days get dark? They set their Bible aside. Say, those are for good days. What I need is some real practical solutions here. They set their Bible to the side when they ought to hold it more closely during those days. Read your Bible. Secondly, pray. The fact is, only the Spirit of God can give you eyes to see God and His faithfulness on your dark days. You need to be pleading with Him to help you to see God, to open the eyes of your heart so that you will 
see. Third, keep a thankfulness journal. Just get a spiral notebook and every day write down the date and write something that you're thankful for. It may be a small kindness of the Lord. It may be a large answered prayer. Here's the thing, friends. Darkness tends to give us spiritual amnesia, forgetting the good that God does and only remembering the darkness. So write it down. Write it down. And on your darkest day, what should you do? Open it up and read it out loud to yourself. And then spend time thanking God in prayer for all that he has done. And then the last thing I would suggest is to preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. Because, friend, God's faithfulness to you, God's faithfulness to me, is not measured by the circumstances of our life. God's faithfulness to us is revealed in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. He was forsaken so that we never will be. And cling to the truth of Exodus 1, that even when our days are dark, our God is faithful. Let's pray. Father, we ask that that would be the cry of our heart on the darkest of days, that you are faithful. You are faithful. You are faithful. We pray that you would give us grace to not simply wallow in the dark days and be satisfied to question your purposes, but that you would give us grace to search you out, that you would give us eyes to see, that you would keep us in your word that you would help us to cultivate a heart of thanks toward you, that we would preach the gospel to ourselves, that we would sing the gospel to ourselves so that we might never forget that you are faithful to us in Jesus no matter how we feel at any given moment. We thank you that we are in the hand of Jesus and nothing can pry us out and that you, Father, are greater than all and nothing can pry us from your hand and nothing can thwart your purposes. Thank you that when the darkness is great, greater is thy faithfulness. And now we pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit will be with us all the rest of this day and in the days to come and forevermore. Amen.